Hi friends! This episode of the Pot and Order podcast is brought to you by Pranin Organic, a Canadian company that makes nutritional supplements using only organic plant ingredients. Pranin products are available online at pranin, P-R-A-N-I-N dot com with international shipping. You can use code PAW15 to save 15% on your total purchase. This episode is also brought to you by the Vancouver Vegetarian Society. Looking for resources on veganism and vegetarianism? Maybe an opportunity to connect with like-minded people? The Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about meat-free lifestyles while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. If you're curious to learn more, find them on Facebook and Instagram at, at Vancouver Veg Society or on the web at VancouverVegetarianSociety.com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and, more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to another edition of Paw and Order. And uh, today we've got some pretty heavy matters to discuss, so it's uh, going to be a little bit of that kind of intro. I'm here today with uh, my co-host Camille Lapchuk. Camille, how are you feeling on this uh, somber day? Oh, Peter, it's been a rough, rough couple of days for a lot of people. So um, on Friday, July nineteenth. Uh, we got the really terrible news that an animal advocate had been killed outside the Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse in Burlington, Ontario. Uh, her name was Regan Russell, and I'd met her a couple of times. She was a lovely, incredible, kind, and compassionate woman. Um, Peter, she was killed outside the slaughterhouse while participating in a Save Movement vigil. And of course, these vigils are the situations where animal advocates go and they stand outside of slaughterhouses and they greet animals on transport trucks who are being shipped into those horrible places to meet their deaths. And the reason they do this is for a couple uh, different purposes. One is to bear witness to the animals on the trucks and document the conditions that they're experiencing. So, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about this transport laws on this podcast before and how bad they are, but animals can be shipped for very lengthy periods in all manners of weather in this country, including very hot weather. And it was a scorching hot day on Friday when Regan was killed. Um, so they document those conditions and they expose them to the world. They also, because of the, the weather conditions, they also offer water or other comfort to the animals in their final moments. Now, this is a pig slaughterhouse, Fearman's. 
And so if um, they're able to, when the trucks stop before going inside the gate to the slaughterhouse, they will put water bottles up to the trucks and give those animals some water. And of course, this is what Anita Crines was charged with criminal mischief for doing in, in 2015. She was charged and acquitted in 2017. So Peter, um, I showed up at the scene not longer after Regan had died, and it was um, a pretty, pretty difficult day, I would say, for everyone. But what seems to uh, be emerging is that Regan was standing on public property. Um, she was killed when the truck rounded the corner to go into the gates, into the slaughterhouse, and it hit her and dragged her for some distance. And um, the people who saw this uh, were all traumatized, and it's been pretty troubling. So. So, no, wow. No doubt. And there's been so many offshoots um, to this story. They, they, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, I, I know that there was, um, well, let's start with uh, the fact that this was not just an ordinary day um, in the sense that the, the um, sorry, I'm, I don't want to confuse the words of vigil with what happened afterwards, but that's just what's on my mind is, um, so the, the, it's, 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 it's not fair to, it, would you characterize it as a protest? Cause there, it's not, it's not fully a protest, right? I mean, they're, they're, it's, yeah, no, it's an interesting question, exactly yeah. how you characterize these activities. I think the animal save movement would call them vigils. Yeah, vigils. So I think they that's go right. Outside. So I did use, because I, I was, yeah. I just didn't want to confuse the term vigil, because literally what's held after uh, her death was quite literally a vigil, but not this time for the pigs, obviously. It was a, uh, a very, a very poignant, I thought, uh, the, the response. But let's just talk about the first part. Um, with respect to the, the vigil for the pigs, obviously this was taking place in the context of the legislation passed, which I don't think we've talked about, uh, since it's happened that would effectively forbid these sorts of uh, activities from going forward in the future. That, that's right. So we're talking about Bill 156, which would have been a main focus of this show no matter what had happened on Friday. Um, but Bill 156 passed just two days prior. So Bill 156 is Ontario's egg legislation. We've focused a lot on what it would do for undercover exposés of animal cruelty on farms. But another really important and terrible thing that it does is it uh, targets the activities of save activists at vigils like this. So Peter, it does this in two ways. Number one, it makes it an offense to stop a truck going into a slaughterhouse. And this is something that advocates in the save movement do. They, they stop the trucks for two minutes, they time it. And uh, in a lot of places where they do these vigils, they have agreements and even written safety agreements with the truckers and with the slaughterhouse that they will be allowed to have two minutes before the truck moves in and everyone will move safely away. So the legislation would make it an offense to stop the trucks for that two minute um, interaction with the animals. And the second thing it does is that it makes it an offense to interact or interfere with an animal on one of those trucks bound into a slaughterhouse. Now, we don't even really know what this means yet, interact or interfere. Does that mean touching animals? Does that mean offering them water? Does that mean uh, taking photos of them or speaking to them? We don't know. Uh, we don't conduct. know, but it seems like that's that's the goal. It seems like that's the goal. The, the government and the farm industry, of course, want to shut down these vigils because they find them inconvenient and they don't like light being shone on their industries. Uh, so the vigil on Friday where Regan was killed was a special vigil organized in opposition to Bill 156. And a number of activists were there on that day. 
And they were not only doing their regular vigil thing, but um, making the point that this could have been one of the last vigils that could be legally held before Bill 156 came into effect. And it just happened to end in tragedy. So, Peter, it's it's extra heartbreaking and sad and just really heart-wrenching because not only did people lose a beloved family member, a friend, a member of the animal rights community, but her death is also so political um, because it does happen in the circumstances where she died trying to expose something that the government wants to make it illegal to expose. Yeah, and, and first of all, I want to say, obviously, I'm a long way away from there, but um, um, I can only, I mean, my heart goes out to, uh, obviously, her family and her many friends in the movement and uh, just just a, just a horrible, horrible event and, and obviously something that would be incredibly traumatic for anyone who was there and, 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 and knew her as well. I mean, these are just terrible things. So my heart goes out to all these people because, again, as you point out, um, she was she was she was doing something uh important for animals and that's what she had from what i understand again i i've never met her but everything i've read about her um suggests that that's the kind of person she was and i know a lot of people like that as do you camille and it's like these are people who spend their lives trying to advocate personally for the most you know the least privileged members of our society Absolutely. And, and Peter, I, I didn't know Regan well, but I'd met her a few times. And I was always really happy to see her. Uh, usually I would see her at vigils or um, she was at Anita Kreins' trial uh, when I attended that. And the more that the days have passed since her death, the more stories I've heard from people who did know her well. And some of those stories are just incredible. I mean, to start with, she'd been an activist since the 70s, like before I was even born. Uh, she got into it in her 20s. And so many people I know have spent time with her at demos, traveled to animal rights conferences with her, uh, worked on advocacy campaigns with her, gone to communities to help dogs with her. Uh, she was an educator. She, she spent a lot of time in schools trying to educate children about animals and why we should protect them. And she cared not just about animals, but anyone who was suffering and who, who needed some compassion. She uh, participated in Black Lives Matters demonstrations more recently. She was a huge uh, women's equality advocate. She stood up for uh, climate justice. Uh, anytime there was injustice, Regan was there. Now, I know that at uh, I saw the press coverage of a very powerful uh, vigil that took place. I, I believe it was the next day. Uh, yeah, there, there were uh, actually uh, the same day. Um, uh, there were a couple of vigils. So, so the, there was uh, in the aftermath of her death, uh, immediately people started going out to uh, the slaughterhouse right away. And uh, I was there all day uh, with some colleagues from Animal Justice and just many, many members of the Toronto and greater Toronto animal advocacy community who were so touched by her and so appalled at what happened. And then two days later, Peter, on the Sunday, there was an organized vigil um, in her honor to remember her and to make the point that she died trying to expose something that the government is trying to hide. So that was very powerful. There were some speeches. Uh, her parents came to that vigil, which was, I, I was just blown away by how selfless it was of them at a time when I can't even imagine how, grief, uh, how, how immense their grief must have been. But both her parents and her husband and stepson were there and they were all spreading stories about her, thanking people for what they're doing to keep her memory alive and to keep her legacy alive. And it was it was a beautiful thing. Um, after, after that, there was a bit of an action. Um, the group of people blocked off an intersection for two minutes. Yeah, I and saw that. 
held up some signs. Yeah. Yeah, very powerful and very... Look, it's important we don't forget what happened here. I'm sure we won't um, for for a very, very long time in terms of uh, commemorating the most important point of this. I mean, there was loss of life by someone who was trying to expose uh, things that people don't want exposed. And I think that's, that's something that is an incredibly important part of what act, uh, advocates do. And I think that uh, we need to continue to fight for their ability to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people are asking what is going to happen to the driver. And I do want to point out there's a criminal investigation going on at the moment. Um, there's a number of legal avenues that might be pursued even by her family. I don't know what plans there are. Um, I What I do know is that people are very upset about her death and um, will be doing whatever they can to hold anyone accountable who should be held accountable. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll add, Peter, is that this is actually the third major documented safety incident at Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse. So, um, well, I guess one of those wasn't a safety incident, but uh, the first one I'm thinking of is when Anita Crines was charged with criminal mischief for simply giving water to pigs. Um, that was obviously pretty shocking. That happened right outside Fearman's, very close to where Regan was run over and killed. And... Uh, not long after Anita was charged, about a year later, there was a horrendous accident at Fearman's where a truck driver. Oh yes, um, I remember. Basically, the pigs, yeah, the pigs I know. were released. It, yeah. The pigs were released. A truck driver. I don't know if the truck driver took a corner too quickly or what happened. I don't believe he was ever convicted of anything, but the truck tipped over. Um, pigs that were inside the truck. I mean, many of them were dead or dying or injured and wandering around with horrific um, injuries and just really suffering. It was October, but it was still a horrendously hot day. It was like in the 30s, I think. And the pigs were really suffering. Um, the slaughterhouse actually corralled the pigs who were still alive and yeah, able to move, that. marched them right in and uh, slaughtered them as they planned to. Um, the activists tried to get the slaughterhouse to, re to agree to release some of the pigs and take them to a sanctuary, which they'd found a sanctuary willing to accept them, and they wouldn't. So that was a pretty big problem. And Peter, I've watched so many videos now in the last few days of trucks running into people at the slaughterhouse. It seems to be not an uncommon thing that occurs where the trucks are frustrated that demonstrators are standing there or people keeping vigil are standing there and move, hoping that they're going to jump out of the way. And uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they, they, they sort of don't and the trucks eventually slow down. But this is far from the first time I've seen of, um, of, of this type of thing happening. Um, unfortunately, it's the first uh, tragic fatality. So I have every reason to believe um, that um, like with every fatality, the police now, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're out of the realm of animal investigators now, right? It's not like, uh, it's not like the situation where the truck turns over, although that should be a police matter as well. Um, I've every reason to believe based on what I know about traffic fatalities that the, the police are going to investigate, um, the, the, the accident fully. Were you able, when you were there to see whether that was taking place? Uh, yeah, there was a police reconstruction, um, crew there they were they were doing a traffic accident reconstruction i understand that there is an investigation open i know these things sometimes take time yeah, um, they sometimes take they time. don't sometimes yeah. police take action immediately i mean right. they charged former attorney general michael bryant pretty much on the spot when mm -hmm. he was accused of running over a pedestrian in toronto but i guess that's a different police force um you know i will say one thing that troubles me is that 
my understanding is that the police in the Halton region have been aware of the issues at Fairbanks for quite some time, and I don't believe they've done enough to protect animal activists. And I would say in general, across Canada, this isn't uh, speaking as to any particular police department, but I would say in general, when advocates are threatened or injured or interfered with in some way by the industries that they're protesting, um, there's often a blame the victim type of attitude that comes from the police. So that always concerns me. I uh, have no reason to believe the police aren't taking this seriously, but I think it's important that we all be vigilant and all um, seek to make sure that justice is done. Yeah, well, let's perhaps, Camille, since we're both, you know, experienced in the criminal law, we could just briefly go through, you know, the potential um, um things that might arise out of this because our viewers might be our viewers our listeners uh might be wondering what those are and anytime there's a traffic fatality there's a range of possibilities um that i think the police would have to consider in making a charging decision um as to whether or not what to do with the driver in this case um and it ranges from you know the the bare minimum up to the the maximum and and just to go through those without saying which is appropriate here, especially, you know, we don't have all the facts, although I wanted to ask you and, and remind me to come back to this question of whether advocates were gave statements. Um, did they give statements? Yeah, okay. yeah, they did. Many have been interviewed I, by the police. I would hope so. Okay, so um, what I was going to say is um, there can be a range of anything and it all depends on the various levels of fault that the driver demonstrated. So at the bottom, it is possible in traffic fatalities. There are traffic fatalities on the road every day um, that the driver would be charged with nothing. Um, acts, if, it's re if it's regarded as an, a true accident that no one could have reasonably foreseen, um, then it would be nothing. It's hard to... Um, believe that that's the result on the facts of this case, but that's always a possibility um, when this comes up. Then escalating up from there is Highway Traffic Act matters. There are Highway Traffic Act consequences um, for failure to oblige uh, with the rules of the road and failure to take due attention. Um, that is the uh, usually, uh, or at least a common response to traffic fatalities where the, the uh, driver operates in a way that's inappropriate given the rules of the road. Um, then you get into from there, you escalate. And I should say that um, I'm not an expert on the Ontario Highway Traffic Act because I, I practice in Alberta. But even within the Highway Traffic Act, there are various gradations. Are you aware of those, Camille? The ones there are various gradations of traffic uh, violation that can lead to death? Yeah, it's, it's been careless. a little while since yeah. I brushed up on my Highway Traffic Act, yeah. but careless driving is the one that I had most often seen charged back when I used to practice criminal defense law. That would be the most common. And from there, there are, of course, driving prohibitions in the criminal code, and uh, you can start to go up from dangerous driving to um, to uh, uh, criminal negligence causing death and ultimately up to manslaughter and, and in theory, even murder, um, which would require, obviously, um, an intention on the part of the actor to actually cause death, which is, uh, th th that would be the, the highest, but that can happen in a vehicle situation. It's just very rare. So like there's a range of potential criminal liability that can exist here. And a lot is going to turn on, um, um, what can be proven about really what the driver knew when the events took place. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, there's a variety of evidence as well. I, I did mention that there have, are witnesses, there are multiple eyewitnesses to what happened. Um, there is likely security camera footage. That's I believe, what I was wondering as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, as you can imagine, they, they kept a pretty close eye on um, anyone who was demonstrating outside the slaughterhouse. And I believe they had cameras pointed right at that um, 
location. And nowadays, um, it wouldn't traffic. surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, if the trucks had dash cams as well. That's possible. There may have been traffic cameras nearby. Um, there's a couple businesses across the streets. All of those could have caught something. And I, I did review video from just moments before she was killed too. And so there's some contemporaneous video, although not um, of the actual incident. Yeah, it's brutal. It's uh, it's really, really upsetting on every level that there is. And uh, um, I'm hoping that uh, the police investigation gives us uh, something to move forward on. Um, and, and I'm hoping that uh, whatever the results of the investigation are, we have we have some answer soon, because I think that'll uh, that's going to really, you know, upset a lot of advocates for a long time to come. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's it's really been um, a huge sort of um, heartbreaking event for, for everybody I know right now and even people who didn't know Regan, but I've heard stories about how special she was. And of course, people who, who care in general about what animals endure and the fact that she was someone who committed so many years of her life to trying to alleviate their suffering. Um, one thing I, I loved about her advocacy is that she often held up a sign, and I think she had it when she was killed, that said, all animals need legal protections. So I appreciate that she really understood the power of the law and the work that we're trying to accomplish. And um, I guess we haven't discussed this yet on this episode, and I uh, we would have at some point, but I'll, I'll just say it now, which is that we're committed at Animal Justice to fighting Bill 156 in court. That's Ontario's egg legislation that tries to shut down what she was trying to expose. Um, and that's something that we'll do because it's the right thing to do, but also in her memory and to carry on the work that, that she started and um, to honor who she was. Absolutely. That's really important that uh, I don't want to say anything good comes of this because I, I think this was going to happen either way. And I don't see good coming of this anyway, but I think that's right. I think these 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 legislative um, um, Restrictions that were put in place are, are designed again to make the, the protest and the ability to, um, um, take, you know, record and take instance of what is going on at these facilities and, and make it more difficult to do that. And I guess one of the things that concerns me is that, you know, there's going to be, ways to spin this story coming out that are going to to be to encourage to say that the bill was the right thing to do. Have you heard things along those lines as well? Uh, I haven't yet, but I am very fearful, of course, that industry and government are going to say that they'll essentially blame the victim and say that the reason they need a gay laws in the first place is because activists create these dangerous situations, which, you know, interestingly, they've never presented that as a rationale during the legislative right, debates right. for this bill. It, so if they start saying that now, we'll right. know what motivates it. It's a it. traffic safety uh, issue. I mean, that's just, it's just so, it's so, it's, I find that very irritating to, and I mean, I just, I don't want to be, I don't want to be raising a straw man because it hasn't come up yet or a straw person, right? To be gender equitable. Um, yes. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to raise that because it hasn't come up yet, but like, you can sort of see whiffs of it on social media at very least like whiffs of oh well this is their fault like it's the same it's the same nonsense as like you saw when a driver plowed into a black lives matter protest like you know you saw that kind of response from certain people like the same idea like oh well they shouldn't be protesting in that area i'm like that's not the way protest works like it doesn't it doesn't you know you're the driver in the vehicle like the vehicle, it doesn't really matter whether there's a protester. It, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a driver and you're, you're, you're driving a, a massive vehicle or any vehicle for that matter to blame, you, 
there, there are there are situations in which you know somebody jumps off the side of the road and jaywalking and you can't stop. That's one thing. But when a protest is going on, to blame the protester because you've plowed a car into them or a truck into them is is very very problematic. That's just not the way it works. No, people do have the lawful right to protest, and that's why we think this bill is unconstitutional. It's because it interferes with that right and the appropriate response to uh, frustration by protesters is certainly not to um, engage in activities that put them at risk. That's never an appropriate response. So no, absolutely not. And, and, and yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be. And nor should it be justified as a reason, you know, as a reason for supporting the law. Like it's again, as you point out, safety of protesters is not, is not what this bill was all about. Like you want to, you want to craft a protest law. Right. That says when people are protesting on public property, they can only do X, Y and Z. I mean, fair game to a certain extent. Right. You could you could do that. You could create rules around which certain things take place. And to a certain extent, we have those rules in a lot of jurisdictions. But I mean, the idea that you just you, you use that rationale as a reason to retroactively say, well, that justifies why we shouldn't have protests is troubling to me. And again, to be clear, we haven't seen that happen yet. So I'm just, you know. But but I'm raising it in case it does. Uh, I I have no doubt that that will be said at some point. I'd like to be proven wrong by that. But, you know, the fact of the matter remains, not only is it not the fault of anyone who was protesting that this occurred, but the government was repeatedly warned during the process of Bill 156 that uh, this legislation would probably make people less safe because it would only inflame the tensions between animal advocates and the farming industry. And, uh, you know, it. it it, so far, it seems to me to have had that effect. Uh, the legislation does a couple of troubling things. It actually empowers uh, farmers to act like private police officers. Um, it exempts them from civil liability in many circumstances. And so it's already pretty troubling anti-activist legislation. And I do worry about what effect that rhetoric from the government has had on the industry. Yeah, again, there, there's there's definitely some truth to that. I can see why people are concerned that legislation of this sort ratchets up the tension, right? Because it, it, it does that. It's the same thing like the trespass laws in Alberta. It creates, it creates a clear hero and villain narrative. Right. That's the idea is that people trying to get into tra- to get into lands are villains and they're doing the wrong thing and you're entitled to do this. Well, when you create law that creates a hero and villain mentality, there's, again, it's, it's essentially the government is expressing what's right and what's wrong and saying, well, these sorts of things like protests are wrong. So therefore, things that are done um, against them are okay. And I'm, I'm definitely concerned. I'm not, I'm, you know, I can't comment on whether that's what what happened here. But like, at the end of the day, there's definitely good reason to be concerned about the narrative that's being created around protests involving animals. And the fact that this law in Ontario targets that type of protest so deliberately is 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 even more troubling. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, You know, actually, interestingly, the NDP, so um, John Vanthoff, who's one of their MPPs, he's the agriculture critic, he actually warned the government, he said this multiple times during debates that one of his fears, and let me say, Peter, John Vanthoff is a dairy farmer himself. Mm -hmm. He supports protecting farmers and their property rights, but he didn't support the unconstitutional aspects of the agag law, including restrictions on the right to protest. And one thing that he pointed out quite a few times is that he feared that it wouldn't be activists who were first charged under this legislation. It would be a farmer or a trucker or or someone in the agriculture sector charged for assaulting an activist because of the powers that it gives them. Right. So yeah, I, I can you see know, that. That's fair. Yeah. 
Wow. So oh, I'm not wow. sure what more there is to say about this, but it's just been a really, really difficult week for a lot of people. And I just want to say, you said it earlier, Peter, but I'll just repeat how sorry all of us are to everyone who knew Regan and to everyone who's been touched by hearing stories about what she stood for and what she did with her life because she truly was special. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, it is it is always, as I said, I mean, it's it's look, it's sad when any advocate is 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 effectively killed in the line of duty, I guess isn't the right term, but in a sense, in the line of their own personal duty, right? It's always upsetting, no matter what the circumstances, just like in, in what's going on in both Canada, but even more so in the U.S. with respect to the Black Lives Matters protest and, and protesters who are being injured and sometimes even killed as a result of what's going on. It's deeply, deeply upsetting when people are, are harmed um, during during the, um, the, the attempt to exercise important personal personal beliefs like that. And it's especially so, obviously, for us in the animal advocacy community when this happens, and especially because it is, as I said, you are speaking out for people who have no, for people, for beings that have no voice. And as a result, like, it's it's, it's essentially, it just feels so much deeper and more personal when these people who are really protesting for the really quite literally the least privileged beings in our in our world um are are, are struck down doing so and it's it's just in again i don't i don't know her i have never met her but i i felt the loss as well not obviously as much as you and her friends and her family but i really felt that when it happened that it was a blow against everyone who does this and tries to speak out on behalf of animals it really does feel like that. And just to follow up on some of your comments, um, it's true. The reason she was out there, it's not because she likes standing in front of a filthy slaughterhouse on a sweltering hot day uh, once a week, which is what she did. Um, the reason she was there is because the government's not. The government effectively doesn't really oversee animals on farms. It barely enforces its own transport regulations. Uh, the state just isn't looking out for these creatures, and she felt that somebody had to, and for that she lost her life. Somebody had to. Well put. Somebody had to. That is just the call of every animal advocate I've ever met in my 20-plus years doing this, Camille, is that somebody had to do it, and uh, she decided to do it. And it's again, it's just deeply, deeply upsetting um, the way in which the story ended up. Okay, it's going to be hard to transition to just about anything else, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sort of like... I know, I know. Where okay, on a here? lighter note, Camille, um, what you been up to? Okay, let's just skip that part of it, although even getting into sections about other stuff, let's try and lighten it up uh, just a little bit. Um, I, I can say, how about I say how much I enjoyed your podcast last week, and I especially appreciated you outing me to everybody and saying, Peter's taking two weeks off. I couldn't even give that myself, Camille. I couldn't even say it for myself. I had to let you say it on behalf. But whatever, it's okay. I, I especially liked when you read last week's review that you didn't let you didn't even give me the pleasure of holding that review back so I could talk about how much they enjoyed listening to you gallivanting. I realize gallivanting just doesn't happen anymore, but I wanted to point out that last week's review mentioned gallivanting and I really liked it. Well, I'm glad that you've been holding on for that for two weeks to, to be able to bring it up today. I'm glad that gave you some joy, Peter. Two weeks I was holding it up. Look, I'm trying to transition to something more pleasant, like something you know, that's even slightly no, lighter. I, I appreciate what you're doing here. Yeah, okay. So uh, trying to do that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I really enjoyed last week's podcast. It was great. I really thought it was wonderful to have uh, Jessica come on and talk about the work that she does. Um, yeah, it was really fantastic. Yeah, I loved having her, and I hope she'll come back again sometime. Um, 
you know, if if you're enjoying this episode, well, I don't know if you're enjoying this episode. It's pretty pretty dark. But <laughs> enjoying if you're, is if a strong word. Yes. If you are getting something useful out of this episode or any other episode, whether Peter is co-hosting, whether Jessica is co-hosting, whether someone else is, um, I would encourage you to leave us a review if you can on Apple Podcasts. Um, we got a couple of new reviews in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we've now got over 150 five-star reviews, which is pretty cool. But um, I don't know, Peter, do you want to read both of these, one of these? Uh, I, one? I might read a couple. Let me just say, by the way, because in fairness, I'm pretty sure my last episode, which was two episodes ago, I did complain about this. So I'm like, I'm beginning to think the complaining works, Camille, because we have, our listeners have been stepping it up. Is that fair to say? We've been getting some yeah. stuff up. There have been a lot more reviews. So how about, um, well, I want to read the second long one, Camille, because you got to read the other one. So why don't you read the first short one and then I'll read the second long one. Okay, so the first one is from Mila Sri, who says, So happy to have discovered this Canadian-focused podcast on animal rights and advocacy. We'll be supporting the good works. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, love, 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 from a name I can't read because I don't think it's it's an alias. V-E-U-V-C-J-V-F-T. But we got three loves, Camille, not just one. Three loves. I like that. Yeah. Hi, Camille and Peter. I found this podcast about a year ago, and I am in love. Oh, thank you. We're in love, too. (laughs) I love the name. What do we call... How would you pronounce that, Camille? Is it Vuvj? Vuv. (laughs) Not an actual name, so we'll just call you Vu. V-E-U. How's that? Uh, Paw and Order goes over the real pressing issues around animal rights, especially today, and animal law in an elaborate and informative way. Heroes and Zeros is definitely the favorite segment. Well, it's everybody's favorite segment, as we know. But I love everything from the news segments to the guests to the friendly banter, Camille, between my favorite podcast hosts. Well, sorry, we disappointed you. There was no friendly banter today, but we will we will be back with friendly banter soon, I predict. I myself was just admitted to law school, congratulations, Vu, this spring and already had a passion for animal rights before, but the podcast strengthened this love even more and I'm dedicated to continuing on this path to help animals as a future lawyer keep up the good work. Wow. Wow, Camille, I'm in love myself with that review. It's pretty cool. I have nothing that I love more than hearing that people are going to law school to pursue this as a career. So thanks for the review and thanks for what you do. No question about it. And a reminder to everyone that one way in which you can show that love is supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Um, we offer regular prizes for our patrons, and we, we of course, offer lots of our love. Um, we do. Patreon allows us to keep doing the show, and really, um, that is really true, by the way. <laughs> Camille and I have had many discussions behind the scenes with our producer, of course, Shannon Milling, and we've talked about uh, the ways in which we we use that Patreon money to keep this show running. So we're really appreciated. We want to thank our new patron, Calvin Climey. Thank you so much for your support. Yay, Calvin. Yes. And and I want to mention another way that you can support animal justice. So um, we recently launched the Summer Compassion Challenge, which is a fundraising drive over the next couple of weeks to help us fund what we plan to do in terms of challenging a gig legislation in court. Um, Peter, so far people's support has been overwhelming. It's been uh, really inspiring to see how deeply people care about countering a gig legislation. And 
A special part of this fundraising campaign is that any new monthly donations or increases, if you're already a monthly donor, those gifts will be matched for the first year. So take the amount that you donate over a year, and they'll be matched up to $50,000 by another very generous supporter of ours. So that's an incredible way to make your money go twice as far and help us fight those laws in court. Um, so if you'd like to take part, visit our website, animaljustice.ca, and you can sign up to become a monthly donor if you care to have your donation matched. If that's not in the cards for you or you can't donate uh, on a monthly basis, one-time donation is also amazing. And of course, we'll be using this funding to help us go to court and strike down those laws that Regan was fighting against and those laws that so many of us oppose because they chill free speech and hide animal cruelty. Hear, hear, Camille. And um, just in case you can't get enough pawn order, um, we made a guest appearance on another podcast. Camille, we were both engaging in some podcast bigamy recently. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Sorry, pawn order. <laughs> we, jo- we joined one of our favorite members of Parliament, Nathaniel Erskine Smith, for his podcast to talk about a gig. Yeah, so if you didn't get enough of it here, although we didn't, we actually, we didn't discuss it as much substantively here. I think, I think we had a pretty, really um, good discussion with uh, Nate and, and in which we were sort of able to go through some of the biggest issues uh, with the legislation. So it's a really good uh, podcast. I, I urge you to check it out. Yeah, it's called um, Uncommons. The Uncommons podcast It's a play on like the House of Commons. His is Uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's good. I'm it's looking good. forward to hearing it. All right, let's talk about the news. We have only two stories today. And frankly, like I could have gone on a main topic on the first story because I have a lot I want to say about it, although it's it's some familiar rants. This is a story that sort of got overshadowed by more recent um, bigger news, obviously, um, you know, what happened with Regan. But but I, I don't think we should totally let it um, be covered up, Camille. We've got to bring it to light because this was a, a really disturbing story as well. Yeah, very troubling. So um, over the weekend, the Globe and Mail published an article about a flight from Ukraine that arrived in Toronto that had um, about 500 puppies on it, 38 of whom were found dead on arrival, with many of the others dehydrated or weak or vomiting, which 500 puppies, Peter. I I have so many questions. I have so many questions. Not only do I have so many questions, I have a few comments, (laughs) as you can imagine. I thought you might. In addition to my comment. Like, I'm so upset by this story. Like, I'm upset by this story. And, and, And I should say, Camille, that as always, A, we don't know all the details. We just have what's in the Globe Mail. So I should say, like, like the CFIA seems to be investigating the story. So it's like, I, I'm not going to say they're under responding because I have no idea. Right. I don't know what they're doing and I don't know at this point, um, what's going to come out of it. But, I, but nonetheless, I have like, how, how do you, how do you get to put 500 animals on a plane? Like that's, that's my question to begin with. So it's a commercial carrier. It's coming from Ukraine, I'm assuming. Sorry, I shouldn't say that it's a commercial. It's a, like I don't, I don't know the nature of the flight. That's not even listed. But there was an airline. Um, is it Ukraine Airlines? Ukraine International Airlines. It's Ukraine Airlines. International. So it's, it says a flight from Ukraine, but it's, I it guess seems we don't know like sure. it's a passenger flight. But I, I, again, I don't know. I don't have enough. It might not be a passenger flight. I don't know one way or another. But I'm trying to understand, like, 
if the animals had been all healthy, like I have so many questions, like what they're then just discharged. Like why is someone importing 500 animals into Canada anyway? Like why are 500 puppies like for what purpose? Exactly. Uh, that's my question too. I mean, Rebecca Aldworth, head of Humane Society International, is quoted in the Globe as saying that the circumstances bear all the hallmarks of a puppy mill. Yeah, thank. Because otherwise, yeah. why do you have 500 dogs that you're bringing into the country? I mean, there's no indication that this was a rescue operation bringing adoptable animals from places that, um, such as Thailand or Mexico, that often they do come in from. Uh, you know, people buying pets on the internet. It's are it's often a lucrative business. Animals. Very lucrative, yeah. very lucrative. And people who go on Kijiji or Craigslist to look for a new dog and maybe don't want to pay like top breeder prices, they're often duped into buying animals to come from puppy mills that they've got no idea about. Well, they should know, but they don't. Yeah, and I have so many more questions because like, just for imagine, just just for a minute, Camille, I, I, did you, are you a fan of The Wire by any chance, by the way? Cause yeah. Wire, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Like, just imagine for a moment, just replace the 500 puppies with like, I don't know, two human beings who are trying to be smuggled into the country. Just like, and imagine, imagine the investigation that would take place as a result. Like, it would be massive if you had a human die in a cargo hold, right? Then, like, it would be just this massive outrage. There would be a huge investigation. It would probably be a big story. Like, my question is, like, like, who are we going to punish? Like, it seems to me there's so many people to go after, and I'm just worried that the CFIA won't go after all of them. Like, there's the importer to begin with. Like, who the who's the person on the manifest? Like, who's shipping this person? Who's shipping them and who's receiving them? Like, I have so many questions. Like, I, I, I don't know a lot about, you know, human smuggling and human trafficking investigations, but I know a fair bit about drug investigations. And I know that when drug investigations go on with respect to importation, there's like a massive undercover operation that like pulls the people in and arrests them. And like, you know, again, they gather evidence. There's this evidence gathering process and there's this like, very, very careful investigation that goes on. And again, I'm not saying CFIA isn't doing that because I don't know what they're doing, but I hope they are. I hope they're really looking at all the things that went wrong here and not just shrugging this off and saying, well, it's just animals. And just one last thing, Camille, I know I've been ranting for a bit, but I just want to say that, like, please, for the love of God, consider criminal charges. Like, 500 animals speaks for itself. When 38 of them are found dead on arrival, it's not enough to proceed with this under the federal regulation regarding the transport of animals, which we, I'm sure you're going to get into or I'll get into, does apply. Please consider that when something this negligent takes place, this, to my opinion, is gross negligence. 500 puppies should not be placed in the hold of an aircraft. And the fact that 38 of them are found dead dehydrated means there's not enough water for them. That should be treated appropriately with the criminal charges hopefully brought against both the airline and the individuals responsible. Uh, yeah, that, that's an awful way to die. And, and like you said, if there is some puppy mill pipeline into this country, I mean, that's something, if, if that's happening and that's being permitted right now, that's something we need legislation to address. That should not be occurring in an age where animals uh, in shelters are not being adopted and we've got all these rescues that are overrun with amazing animals who need homes. Why are we bringing animals into this country for sale? So that's really troubling. Um, Peter, it's not reflected in this article, but I did see a follow-up as well that indicated, and this might undermine your potential confidence in the CFIA, that the CFIA has released the surviving puppies to whoever was importing them. Oh, so fantastic. I'm, I'm troubled by Delightful. that too. Delightful. 
By, by the way, let me just do a shout out. Rebecca Aldworth, I was just I was just flipping through the article a little bit, and she goes a little further. She literally says some of the things I just said, so I feel like I just stole it from her. I should give her credit. She says, first of all, it raises a lot of questions, and I definitely think the Canadian public wants answers to these questions. Then says, responsible airlines will not transfer animals in extreme heat. And then she points out, and I would question, literally because I just said this, what airline has the capacity to put 500 dogs on one plane? It's just, it's yeah, just. How do you even do that? That's so many dogs. It's just absolutely insane. And the idea that it's all good or this, that, and the other, I'm just really, really troubled. So I, I think, I think, uh, kudos to Rebecca for pointing out literally all of the right questions about this. And, and, and again, so many more. And of course, we should point out that, like, I think criminal charges would, would be appropriate based on, again, 38 animals dying and others in acute straits of distress. But let, let's leaving aside, we should point out that dog transport, we don't really think of it in quite that way, but we, we had a chance to look at the law. Dog transport, like any transport of animals, is covered by the Federal Health of Animals Act. That's right. That's right. There's, so there's transportation rules that apply, similar to those that apply to animals being transported for slaughter that we've been talking about earlier. And those include things like not handling them poorly and um, not overcrowding them and um, not treating them in a way that's likely to cause uh, distress to them. Absolutely. So we will really make an effort to follow up on this story because, like, again, History does not bode well. And can I just add one little point, Camille? I, 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 the reason I make such a big deal about um, um, criminal charges being laid for this is, again, like, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate the criminal law's deterrent function, but I do think the criminal law has a function to denounce conduct that's really problematic. And I think that too often when we've seen these cases of animal smuggling, and again, I don't know if this is an animal smuggling case. It's not like dogs are, you know, wildlife that are being transported against, uh, you know, international treaties, but I, I don't think animals should be brought in in quite this way. There is just too much of a reluctance to actually charge them in a way that I think is appropriate given the nature of the activity that took place. And what I mean by that is too often there's this fallback on the regulatory regime rather than a concentration on what is frankly a criminal operation. And I remember the reason I bear this out is because I remember when you know, I remember there was this case in New Zealand, so it's going back a little while, when I was in New Zealand, where this guy was, like, bringing in all these snakes, and he had them wrapped in his clothing so that he wouldn't caught by, be caught by, you know, biosecurity. And, and what, when he was caught, he was, of course, charged under the Customs Act. And I thought, but the snakes died, and there's every reason to believe that they died of, of dehydration or being crushed by, by the fact that he was strapping them to his body. And I'm sort of like, well, why does he never get hit with the, the cruelty charges in addition to the other charges? Like, it seems to me that when animals are mistreated during transport and that mistreatment reaches the criminal standard, it's, it's wrong to let him off with just the regulatory, uh, charge because that's a much less serious charge and it doesn't, it doesn't help, uh, down the road, you know, when we're trying to do things like prohibit access to the animal. I'm not sure, Camille, that the Health of Animals Act actually has the prohibition, you know, has animal care prohibitions. Well, if we've got a puppy mill importer, and again, those facts haven't been borne out, though they certainly lead to that inference. Um, it seems to me that animal prohibition orders would be exactly what you'd want to slap on the various parties involved. Absolutely, Peter. And, you know, I think when commercial conduct is at issue, it's especially the case 
that the strongest charges need to be levied uh, because that's where you get the deterrence factor. You know, a slap on the wrist or a small fine, it's the cost of doing business for commercial operators. They need something harsher to deter them from this conduct. Well, kind of ironic in our discussion, which was not on this podcast, but with Nate about the fact that in, in Alberta, you know, if you encourage somebody to trespass, they go after the corporation and the organization that did that in an attempt to, I think, quite like, quite likely to bankrupt these smaller animal rights organizations. But again, just far too often, it's another theme of animal cruelty law, that the, the, the corporate purveyor usually gets left aside. It's usually the individuals that do this. And like in this sort of operation, I, I'm really hoping, if nothing else, we see charges against you know, the airline, if there's if there's clear wrongdoing, that's what you'd want to see. And again, it's hard to ignore the possibility of wrongdoing, given the numbers and the, and the suffering that was clearly present. Really tough to ignore. All right. Oof, got that out of my system. I've been thinking about that since that story broke. That story was really bothersome, oh. too. Well, let's end this on a positive note. God damn it, Camille. Can we end this on a positive note? There was at least one... I think one, we deserve a little something's positive A little today. something, some a victory um, in, uh, in result to a case that I'm pretty sure we discussed when it came out on Paw and Order involving Bryce Cassavant in British Columbia. Yeah, so Bryce Cassavant, I don't know if we would have discussed this because this actually dates back to 2015. I, I so think Bryce, we discussed some of the legal stuff that came out of it, not the case itself. But anyway. Okay, that's possible. It's been in the news repeatedly since that time. So Bryce Cassavant, he was a BC conservation officer. And in 2015, he was fired by the conservation officer service because he refused to kill two bear cubs who he thought did not need to be killed. So their mother had been killed. Um, they were orphaned. He decided he would take them to a veterinarian and then a wildlife rehabilitation center. Uh, but they ordered him, his bosses ordered him to kill the cubs and he flat out refused and he said no. He felt that he had the discretion as a conservation officer um, to make this decision. And his decision was that they can be rehabilitated, which Peter, I will note that they were successfully rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. So he was proven right. Mm -hmm. um, Poor Mr. Cassavant, since that time, he's been doing a couple things. First of all, he embarked on a PhD um, program, which he's now completed through Royal Roads University, and I believe he used some of his research in this legal battle. And the second thing he did is he sued the Conservation Officer Service for wrongful dismissal. So there's various complicated proceedings that arose out of that, but this case got to the Court of Appeal recently, and the Court of Appeal ruled that his dismissal was unlawful. Um, Actually, that's not quite true. They ruled that uh, the previous proceedings that had taken Correct. place were improper. It's a very technical decision. Improperly. I, I've looked at it myself. It's really for law nerds. It's like, you, yeah, you it can, is. if you go look the decision, and, and by all means, you know, I encourage everybody to look at the law, but for animal law people listening to the decision, you want to go read this and learn about the bears. It's not about the bears. <laughs> like the British Columbia Court of Appeal does not discuss the action in any detail that took place. No, no, it's about employment and lines yeah, of authority technical. and yeah. yeah, but the long and the short of it is that um, the proceedings that uh, fired him basically have been declared a nullity. That is correct. So he gets to start over. Um, you know, I, I have no special insight into what might happen next, but I feel like the Conservation Officer Service um, really did Mr. Cassavant wrong, and I hope he's able to get some compensation well, out of them for... They're going to have to pay. I really hope they have to pay because this is ridiculous. Well, they've already um, lost. I'm assuming, of... I'm assuming you won costs at the hearing. So I'm assuming they've, they've paid him out at least in part for that. 
Yeah, I hope so. I, I didn't know this out in the judgment. No, I, I didn't either. But I'm, been I'm guessing. I'm always guessing the costs follow the action. And as we know, Camille, we've talked about costs <laughs> in this on this podcast many times before. Usually against yeah. animal rights advocates. So at this point, at least he was able to hopefully get costs in that. Yeah. Yeah, so happy to hear see a victory for him. Um, I know he continues to carry on work doing conservation. Now he works at Pacific Wild, which is a great BC-based organization. And uh, just really happy for a good person who did a right thing. Um, sometimes compassion does win. Absolutely. Prawn and Organic is a Canadian company that makes vegan certified organic nutritional powders using only plant ingredients. Pranin's products provide high levels of natural vitamins and minerals and are free from synthetic ingredients, animal products, and all other mystery ingredients. The pure food product line includes iron, vitamin C, B vitamin complex, and A to Z multivitamins. They're designed to complement almost any diet and can be especially helpful for those who are vegan or vegetarian by targeting common deficiencies and boosting nutrient intake from real organic fruits and vegetables. I have some of their products and I put them in my smoothies in the morning and they are delicious powders. Uh, and it's even better knowing that they're good for me. Pranin's products are available online with international shipping, including free shipping for orders over $100 to Canada and the US. As listeners of Paw and Order, you can get 15% off your total order at pranin.com, P-R-A-N-I-N, using the code PAW15. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know the benefits of eating a meat-free diet. But there are likely people in your life who find the idea of cutting out meat and animal products intimidating or scary. The Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about meat-free lifestyles while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. They post a ton of resources and information daily on their social sites and regularly take part in events to bring people together in the plant-based community. If you're curious to learn more, find them on Facebook and Instagram at, at Vancouver Veg Society or on the web at VancouverVegetarianSociety.com. All right, Camille, today our main topic uh, is something that you undertook. We have a wonderful interview, and this, once again, not surprisingly, Camille, relates, at least indirectly, to AGAG. It does. So I sat down with Dr. Mark Beckoff for an interview, and I'm going to introduce him in a minute with his bio, but he's a very well-known biologist and ethologist. So he studies animals and their behavior, and he's popularized ideas about their emotions and their cognitive capacities and who they really are. So I got connected with uh, Dr. Beckoff because a few weeks ago, <laughs> during the hearings for the AGAG bill in Ontario, um, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture put out a pretty troubling statement that Mark and I are going to get into about the fact that animals perhaps aren't sentient. Um, so he saw that, he was outraged, we got in touch, we ended up collaborating on some writing projects in relation to that, which we will get into. So, Mark is a professor emeritus of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He has published 31 books, won many awards for his research on animal behavior, animal emotions, compassionate conservation, and animal protection. And he has worked closely with Jane Goodall and is a former Guggenheim Fellow. Mark's latest books are Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do, and Unleashing Your Dog, A Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Companion the Best Life Possible. And he wrote that with Jessica Pierce. He also publishes regularly for Psychology Today. 
Mark and Jessica have recently written a book about what the world will be like for dogs and when humans disappear called Dogs Gone Wild, Imagining the Lives of Dogs in the World Without Humans, published by Princeton University Press, coming out some future date. In 1986, Mark won the Masters Age-Graded Tour de France. His homepage is markbeckoff.com, that's M-A-R-C-B-E-K-O-F-F.com. Mark, welcome to the Pod and Order podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very, very much for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, I should tell our listeners how we first got connected. Uh, The other week, and what we're going to talk about today, uh, among other things, is um, in the context of the egg gag laws that Ontario was trying to pass, a group called the Ontario Federation of Agriculture put forward a submission to the committee that was studying these egg gag laws. And uh, they actually disputed in the submission that animals are sentient and can think and feel, which... It was pretty shocking. So someone sent that to you, Mark, and you were surprised enough that you felt you had to respond. Yeah, Justin did. With, right. You know, pulling that quote out about that there's no evidence that, you know, basically there's no evidence that non-human animals think or feel. Um, so that basically opens the door for treating them in any perverse way that these people want to. Yeah, it's incredible. And let me just read directly from the submission because you really can't make this stuff up. So in the section on animal welfare and animal rights, um, the OFA tries to define what sentient is. They say the term sentience has no universally accepted definition because feelings and emotions are subjective and can't be measured directly. And then they say that sentient beings also refers to the power to reason or think and implies that those beings have an awareness of their surroundings and the respond to sensations. And, you know, basically they're trying to argue that we don't really know for sure if animals can do that. We know humans definitely can and animals can't communicate with us. So there's just this huge assumption by activists that animals have emotional responses and the ability to reason and think in the same way that humans do. But we don't really know that. So they conclude by saying, therefore, we cannot contribute human qualities of reasoning and cognitive thought on animals as the activists would like. And what did you think when you read that? Well, I thought it was an article from The Onion, which is a big sort of alternative and, and relatively sarcastic, sometimes um, newspaper in the States, probably, I don't know if you get it up there. Um, you know, on the one hand, I was surprised, and the other hand, I wasn't surprised at all, because I do meet people who feel or, or you know, um, write that we don't know X, Y, or Z when the data are there. I mean, I confront that with people in the, f- you know, the food industrial complex. I, I personally, because I'm a field worker studying be- animal behavior and behavioral ecology, confront that with people who say we don't really know that, you know, wild wolves or, or coyotes or chimpanzees really think and feel. I mean, there's still this relic of morons out there. And, you know, they'll say, show us the data and you show them the data, and then the big line is they'll say, well, let's see the data. <laughs> you kind of sit there. I mean, you, you, you know, you get so frustrated about it all. Um, so, so I wasn't really surprised because people, um, I confront that all the time, being in the field of cognitive ethology too, you know, the study of animal minds, where people say, well, they're only acting as if they feel pain or as if they're happy. And, you know, then these are people 
who go home and love their dog. And I always um, use sort of dogs and other companion animals as what I call these uh, gateway species for bridging the empathy gap. Yeah, because very few people would, would say that their cats or dogs can't think or feel, even farmers. I don't even think this is a mainstream perspective amongst farmers, but these guys at the Ontario Federation of Agriculture perhaps aren't even that mainstream, but, uh, but it's true. I mean, as you pointed out in a, an article for Psychology Today that you wrote about this whole submission, uh, the science is, is very well settled that animals think and feel. Oh, yeah. I mean, the real question from a biological view is why have emotions and, you know, <clears throat> rich cognitive, why have cognitive capacities and emotional capacities evolved, not if they have evolved? And, and it's clear that it's implicit in any kind of animal welfare legislation, no matter how lame it is, that if they really didn't think that um, these non-human animals, food animals, uh, weren't, you know, weren't smart and emotional, then anything goes. And for a lot of people, it would be anything goes, because a lot of people think that the regulations and the laws are just, you know, an impediment to making more babe lettuce and tomato sandwiches or more cow burgers or something like that. Um, but there really are dumb people out there. And I just, it's just, it's just something I, I feel I have to say. And, and they're, they're dumb in a very self-serving way. So they either ignore what we know or they just don't know what we know. Um, but they do go home, a lot of them, not all of them, because dog abuse and the abuse of companion animals is fairly rampant and people are surprised by that. Um, and then treat their companion animal as if they're, you know, just love muffins and have this whole spectrum of feelings. So I think to me, it always boils down to the economics of it. I really do. Right, right. And, and, and the fact that there is perhaps some motivated reasoning going on and if somebody's profiting from confining chickens, exploiting <laughs> pigs, killing cows, they're much less susceptible to actually reading and um, accepting the science that is pretty clearly settled at this point. And I take your point about sentience being pretty clearly enshrined in legislation, whether it's explicit or not. Some places have make it, made it explicit and say, uh, in Quebec, for instance, Quebec says animals are not just property, they're also sentient beings. Um, lots of countries have done that. That's not even particularly novel anymore. But even when they haven't made that very, very obvious in the legislation, the fact that there's cruelty laws at all, I mean, why would they exist if animals couldn't feel pain, right? Yep. Some people will say they exist because they're, they're doing it, you know, sort of gratuitously that, well, you know, people think this, so we'll do it. And, you know, in Canada, the United States, I mean, throughout the world, some of the cruelty laws are really lame. You know, I mean, they really don't protect animals against a lot of heinous abuse. Like in the United States, the Federal Animal Welfare Act was rewritten to exclude uh, laboratory rats, mice, birds, fishes, and other animals as being animals. And there's a clause in the United States Animal Welfare Act that says we are redefining animals to exclude these certain fully sentient beings. Yeah, um, it's, it's quite incredible, really, because it omits most of the animals used in, in research and testing. Um, even, you know, slaughter provisions, from my understanding, in the States omit chickens, which are most of the animals who are slaughtered in the yeah. States as well. 
So there's often trickery that can go on there when the government decides who gets to count for the purposes of the word animal. Exactly. And once again, people also, you know, um, true, true animal welfare really is, is um, responsible for the abuse and horrific abuse of trillions of animals when you throw fishes into the equation. Because true animal welfare basically says that if we're trying to, we're trying to do all we can to <coughs> reduce or eliminate, you know, pain, harm, suffering, and death. And if we're doing all we can and those events happen to happen, then it's okay because we're doing our best to reduce it. And, and that's why Jessica Pierce and I, you know, book The Animal's Agenda basically wrote animal welfare off and substituted it with what we call the science of animal well-being, where the life of every single individual matters because they're alive, because not because of what they can do with us or do for us. Um, and sentience plays a role there. You know, the old Jeremy Bentham quote about it's not whether they can talk or think, it's can they suffer. Um, so if you adhere to some of the guidelines for the science of animal well-being and every individual matters, then you can't begin to justify um, the use of techniques that cause any harm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And people go, oh, that's really radical. Um, I think that the killers and the abusers should be looked at as the radicals, not the people who want to protect the non-humans. Absolutely. Absolutely. And going back to a comment you made a minute ago about whether they can think or reason. I mean, I've always found that so human supremacist as well, because it's setting up humans as a metric by which we should judge all other animals. And really, whether they're worthy of our consideration depends on whether they have qualities that are most like us, uh, which has always just struck me as completely the wrong way to go about it. I mean, obviously, we're a species that considers ourselves a dominant species. Who knows how much longer that will last with climate change. <laughs> but, um, you know, can, can you talk a little bit about some of the abilities that animals have that humans just never will and why that matters? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got like ultrasound and infrasound, you know, sounds at a really high pitch that bats and various cetaceans use and the really low frequency sounds that some ground dwelling or subterranean um, rodents use, for example. You know, we don't really use UV light. Um, we don't fly. You know, we, I mean, some people do, but not in the way of flying, like, you know, from one house to another in the air. Um, we really don't have the, say, sensory capacities that a lot of animals have. And so we could set ourselves up as a template against which all other animals are compared, but it's really, it's really bad biology, you know, in the end. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's really ignores evolutionary continuity. It really ignores basic um, evolutionary principles, but it's convenient to do that because the minute we place ourselves at the top of some kind of hierarchy or pyramid, Higher means more valued, more important. Lower means less valued, less important. And that opens up the door for all sorts of um, human exceptionalism and abuse. Right. And that makes me think of those um, images you sometimes see online where there's one 
a pyramid with humans at the top and it says ego underneath and then there's a circle with all the species on the planet sort of interacting with each other and it's the difference between an ego system and an ecosystem and yes your comments really bring that to mind yeah we're good about putting ourselves on the top of these pyramids so that not only are we quote above the other animals but we're separate from them so yeah, we don't even consider ourselves animals most of the time. I think if you point out to a lot of people that humans are animals, they're kind of like, well, no, we're different. Yeah, humans. we're different. But, but we're, I mean, some people might be plants, but we're certainly not. <laughs> and we're not microbes. But you're right. And that's why when I write, some editors get upset with it, but I really insist on two things. I will say non-human animals, and then in parens, I'll put the word animals just, to, just so it doesn't get burdensome when you're right. And the other um, is that animals are who, not what. It's a matter of who we eat, not what we eat, or who we are abusing. And once again, that just comes back to them not being objects on, or property like they are under the law. Um, it comes back to them as being subjects of a life. Um, and that opens a door for a lot of conversations. So you've been doing this work now, Mark, for decades. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little about how the field of biology and the field of ethology has evolved since you started. And in particular, um, how the attitudes of your colleagues have evolved. Do you, do you feel like the field now and the um, relevance of animals as a scientific topic gets more respect than it used to? I do. I mean, when I started... Um, I named my animals and I never even thought about the notion of being anthropomorphic. I mean, I never doubted that non-human animals, you know, felt and had, you know, rich cognitive lives. Jane Goodall, of course, really blazed the trail early on when she was doing her early work, um, early field work on chimpanzees by naming them and saying that they have distinct personalities and her thesis committee at the university of Cambridge and, the UK said, we, we don't do that. And although it's not a quote, I mean, Jane basically said, well, you know, you might not, but I do. And she continued doing it. But she was a big influence on me back then because I would name the animals I was studying. I would call them who. Um, and I would, I mean, part of my own early research and it continued into the field was really looking at, you know, documenting uh, different personalities and temperaments trying to understand why they evolved and then trying to factor them into, say, the social behavior of wild coyotes living in the Grand Teton National Park in um, Wyoming, for example. Then Donald Griffin came along, who a lot of people call the father of cognitive ethology. Um, he was an award-winning scientist who discovered echolocation in bats when he was a, an undergraduate at Harvard University. And he wrote a book called The Question of Animal Awareness. And people thought he was crazy. I mean, I was at meetings where they thought he had lost his mind. Because who, right, who in the right mind would talk about consciousness and subjective feelings? Um, so that was a huge turn. But there weren't a lot of people doing it, you know, back then. I think things have changed for the better, if you will, the better meaning more acceptance. Um, until I read that Ontario report, I was really happy to say that there were few, if any, researchers I knew who would ever make the stupid, inane, ludicrous claim that they, we don't have scientific evidence that, um, you know, say non-human animals think and feel. Yeah. Um, so 
So I think things are getting better. Um, they're not close to what I would like them to, where I would like them to be, but I think they're getting better. Um, very few scientists in the United States or really throughout the world um, have spoken out or would speak out about situations like that report that the Ontario Federation of Farmers put out. So I always say, you know, you know, where have all the flowers gone? Where have all the scientists gone? Where has all the science gone? And as a scientist, that's frustrating to me, but I've just learned, I've learned to deal with it because deep in my heart, I'm an optimist. <laughs> don't, don't press me on that <laughs> in what's going on in the world today, but, but I am an optimist and I think things are changing and will change for the better, but it's going to take time. Oh, I, I think you have to be an optimist to do this work. Otherwise, it just weighs down on you too much. And it's impossible to move forward if you don't see some light at the end of the tunnel, potentially. And I do have confidence that, that one day we're going to come out on top and the world will become more compassionate. It might just take us a little while to get there. But um, yeah. that's interesting to hear your perspective. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I think a lot about how some animals obviously were quite able to identify with, particularly mammals, because they're much more like humans. Uh, but then we've got chickens and birds, uh, chickens especially, given the number of them that uh, we can find and kill for meat. And then fishes, as you mentioned earlier, fishes, I feel like um, a lot of people still don't even accept that they feel pain. I know the science is, is increasingly clear on that point, but mm -hmm. even much more recently than animals or, or mammals or birds rather, um, there were some scientists who disputed that. I wonder, do you, do you think that that's moving in the right direction as well? Slightly. I mean, it, I believe among some people it is, but it's, it's glacially slow. I mean, people start, like you said, with animals with whom they're familiar, like companion animals or animals with whom we think we're evolutionary, um, evolutionary close, evolutionarily closer. Um, than say fishes. But yes, I do believe that in some ways it's changing, um, but that's going to be a long way off. I mean, it just is. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be working for, you know, protecting fishes and invertebrates and, you know, even birds like chickens and turkeys who are just killed by the zillions, if you will. Um, but we got to start somewhere. And I think you know, m mammals um, are as good a place to start as any. And that's why a lot of like, um, like Stephen Wise's work for, you know, personhood and the non-human animals uh, project in the United States is beginning with great apes. You know, he's not saying, and never would he say that other animals don't deserve being declared persons, but try convincing somebody that a tuna fish or a goldfish should be granted personhood when we can't even grant it to companion animals or to um, our closest relatives, great apes. Yeah, no, we, we think about tuna fish and we think about a can of tuna at the supermarket, not a large, amazing, intelligent being who swims the ocean and is a key member of the ecosystem. It's still a huge disconnect. Yeah, and, and, that, I, and they're sentient beings. I mean, you're, you're causing intense pain and suffering to tuna and other you know, fish food, if you will. Yeah, and I, I think there's this perception that there are a lot of the time, well, oh, you know, fishes just live their lives and then they get plucked out of the ocean and that's all fine. And I don't think a lot of people really appreciate exactly how they die. 
uh, which happens in a variety of ways, but none of those are, are good ways. And some of them, I, I believe, cause significantly more suffering even than a modern slaughterhouse operation, because at least there, there are some laws, minimal as they may be. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes when I say that to people, they want to do a sanity check, but absolutely um, the amount of suffering that fishes go through is as intense for them as the suffering, say, that you know, mammalian food animals go through. And maybe even more. I think it's I think it's difficult to measure in the you know intensity of pain in those horrific situations. But there's no reason to think that fishes suffer less than um, cows, for example. No, because and it matters. What matters, I, I guess, is the suffering um, as it's perceived by that individual subjectively, and not some objective determination that we can make. Absolutely, suffering is individualistic. Absolutely, it's. It's, they don't have to say, you know, chicken, chicken Charlie or chicken Mary doesn't have to say, oh, I'm chicken Charlie and I'm in pain. Doesn't matter whether they know, quote, who they are. They know it's their pain. And you can't, I mean, I'm sure people try to debate that, but, you know, the arguments I've heard are just moronic. So I don't even pay any attention to it. Um, but like I said, you need to start somewhere. And I think the farm bill in Ontario, um, is as good a place to start because people by and large are much more familiar with mammals, cows, pigs, you know, there's Babe, the movie. And then, you know, there's lots of movies in which there are, you know, remarkably um, sentient cows, if you will. Um, and I'm I've actually started writing an article today, you know, why are cows meat uh, pig's pork, but chicken is chicken and tuna is tuna. You know, you don't read about cow burgers or babe um, burgers, or, you know, you read about sausage pork. And That's super interesting. You're, you're basically saying that people are so disconnected from tuna fishes that we don't even have to disguise what they are. Unlike a cow, you would never call a cow <coughs> burger a cow burger. You'd call it beef. You'd call it exactly. beef. Exactly. Right. Or babe lettuce and tomato sandwich, which is a phrase I came up with when I was partaking in a protest up in Toronto years ago. And people go, well, why'd you say that? And I'll just say, oh, remember the movie Babe? And it rings a bell. And I, I do a lot of kids events. And I remember talking about this um, and it just came up. So I put it out there in, in a nice way. And the mother of one of the students in this class was irate and she called the principal and emailed me that I had told her kid not to eat bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwiches. And I said, Oh no, no, I never did that. And I never would. I just reminded them that their bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich was a babe lettuce and tomato sandwich. And they had seen the movie babe and kids are just astounded and by and large off put when they learn that their hamburger was a cow or that their bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich or ham and cheese sandwich or, you know, rib sandwich or sausage on a pizza used to be a, a pig who went oink. Absolutely. And, I mean, they're, they're really, and, and, and some of them just say, sorry, I, I just can't eat this anymore. And that's the reason they're not giving any, sophisticated philosophical argument that just saying, sorry, can't do this anymore. 
Um, but sometimes parents and teachers get a little edgy because that's what's, that's, I always say that's who's on the menu at school <laughs> and that's who's packed into their lunchbox. Um, and, and once again, the, the fishes, uh, the place of the fishes, you know, it just depends whether some kids have been raised with a fish. I mean, I was raised with a goldfish because that's what people had. I grew up in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I had my requisite fish in a bowl, and I used to talk to that fish all the time, and my parents never stopped me. But um, try to talk to people about, you know, tuna or, um, you know, s sushi. And... Right. They get pretty defensive about the whole thing pretty fast. And when people get defensive, I just go home because you're done. <laughs> you're not going to convince them, of, you know, maybe at a later date. Yeah. yeah, no, it's all about planting seeds. And the more seeds that are planted, the better chance that some of them are going to eventually grow, right? That's, that's kind absolutely. of all we can hope to do. No, absolutely. It's, that's what, I mean, I always like that, that, you know, analogy too, that it is planting seeds. I mean, my attitude is, you be nice to the people with whom you disagree, put it out there and move on. And if people want to get into these silly arguments about we don't know this or, oh, you're just a radical, my, my, my preference is to move on and work with people who are willing, you know, say are willing to learn from me and I'm willing to learn from them. I think that's the right approach. And, and you've certainly done a lot more to educate uh, people about the amazing cognitive end, especially emotional capacities that animals have, uh, given how prolific an author you are and how much your work is spread out there. And it's something that was hugely influential to me as I started thinking about becoming an animal rights lawyer and, and doing this work. So I appreciate that. But um, I'm wondering if uh, you, you feel like the work that you do directed at children offers more promise than directed at adults. Do you feel like there's a, a greater payoff there speaking with younger minds who haven't been completely indoctrinated by a society that views animals as body parts instead of individuals? Yeah, I do. I mean, I love working with kids. Um, first of all, they ask really wickedly difficult questions. You know, whenever I hear somebody say, oh, this is a stupid question, but I kind of brace myself because there's no such thing as stupid questions. Um, but they're also much more open about it. They're open about what they know and what they don't know. And, and so many kids, you know, and I, I don't want to say especially kids who are living with a companion animal, but sometimes that seems to be the case, to say, well, well how could they say that? My dog, is, you know, is a mammal. My dog feels they grieve, they feel joy, they love to play, they, they fall in love, they, they get jealous, they get embarrassed, they, they enjoy certain activities, they, they run away from certain situations because obviously they, they're fearful. And, you know, when a kid who's six or seven years old learns that, you know, cows and pigs and other food animals, I hate the phrase, but I always say so-called food animals are mammals with the same brains and the same neurochemistry and neuroanatomy, it, it really bums them out. It makes them sad. Um, and they're the future. You know, um, you know, depending on the word you use, I, always, I sometimes say, but I wouldn't say it to them, is you know, their minds haven't been contaminated um, <laughs> by, um, by falsehoods about who animals are.
Yeah, I mean, we've all been socialized to believe a certain thing about animals, which is that some are worthy of our love, some are meant for our use, and um, some are pests to be destroyed and done away with. And no, I think you're totally right. You ask any like small child if, if, if an animal, if their pet, cat or dog can feel and think, and of course they know the answer to that question. And it's so often, uh, you know, the parents that are put in the position of trying to justify why their family eats certain animals and loves certain other animals. And it can be a pretty difficult situation that prompts that cognitive dissonance for the parents. So I admire all those little kids and especially the ones who end up pushing their parents to maybe go vegetarian or vegan and become mm -hmm. more interested in animal rights. They do. And um, among some of my friends, there's definitely been changes brought about in their meal plans by the kids in their home. I mean, I, I, I have two good examples of people who now have something like maybe Meatless Monday and Meatless Friday, um, some who will, you know, in, indulge in certain, you know, um, meaty meals, if you will, maybe once or twice a week, not 10 times a week. And, and, and that's wonderful. Every now and again, people... Some people will say, well, that's not enough, you know, that overnight they should be going vegan or vegetarian. And I'm thinking, yeah, that would be nice. But number one, it probably won't last. And number two, give them the credit for what they're doing. I mean, my goodness, you know, just stop being negative. I always just say work for the animals, not against people. Just work for what's in your heart and not work against people, um, if you will, attack the position, not the person. Um, I, I think that's right. And we've got to remember as we do activism work and spreading compassion to have compassion for humans. And humans have been socialized over decades of their lives to believe a certain thing. And it's not such an easy matter to give up on that belief. Um, and it's even more of a difficult matter to change one's behaviors, even if that belief changes. Old habits die hard, as they say. So, so Mark, um, it's been really great having you and uh, so admire all the decades of work that you've done. And I'm curious if you could share with your listeners, with our listeners, given so much experience that you have in this field, what gives you hope for the future? What, what, what do you think keeps you going at this point and what makes you optimistic for what might come next? Well, I look at successes as being really monumental. Sometimes they look like you know, little successes. Um, and I just really, for me, negativity is, a, I always say it's like a time energy bandit. It steals, you know, we're all, we all have finite energy and time. And, you know, in some cases, you know, if we're funding different sorts of research, the money to put into it. So I don't really have room in my life for that negativity. I mean, you know, a lot's going on in the world today that's very trying and challenging and negative. But, you know, a couple of, um, couple of months ago, I got an email from a sixth grader who wants to shut down the Bronx Zoo. No, right, exactly. Um, I've gotten, I, I have a lot of emails come in from elementary, middle, and high school kids, you know, whatever level that would be comparable to in Canada, um, who really want to make the world a more compassionate and empathic and respectful place for non-humans. And I love working with them. Um, so are there failures? 
Yeah, I mean, the Ontario Federation for Agriculture report is just, you know, an unmitigated disaster. I read it. I wrote about it, as you did. And we just have to keep putting the word out um, about what kind of lies and falsehoods they're perpetuating. Well, I think that's right. Uh, animal cruelty flourishes in secrecy, and it mm -hmm. um, doesn't do so well when people like you and others shine light on what happens and uh, really educate people about what's going on. Um, I think one of the best things that ever happened uh, to, you know, in Canada, for instance, a few years ago, one of the best things that ever happened to the animal rights movement was when Anita Crines, a woman, was charged with giving water to pigs, uh, charged with criminal mischief for showing an act of compassion by giving mm -hmm. water to pigs who were suffering on a hot day. And the reason for that is because it really shone a light on that industry and spotlighted things that they wanted to hide. So I, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I like to say, uh, borrowing from Gretchen Weiler, who was a wonderful activist, that cruelty can't stand the spotlight. And you know, and, and I add to that sometimes don't expect a gold star on your head at the end of the night when you've written or said something. You know, you just got to be focused, be nice to people, and just keep putting the message out, as you said. And people will either pick up on it or they won't. But I also say, you know, don't like to get involved in these pissing matches with people who just want to deflect attention away from the real issues at hand and want to just waste your time, energy, and possibly money. Well, I think that's some good advice to all our listeners and anyone out there doing activism and trying to make the world a better place. So, Mark, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate that you came on. And uh, thanks for sharing your perspectives with our listeners. My pleasure. And thanks for all you all do. It's, we're all in together. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you. Heroes and Zeros. All right. Now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show and that includes especially our friend Viv, right who says it's her favorite <laughs> part of the show well everybody's favorite part of the show heroes and zeros and our hero today should be absolutely no surprise to anybody who's been listening uh it is literally literally the very least we can do literally the very least we can do regan russell is the hero this episode um, I don't think we need to say a ton more about why she's the hero, but let me just, you know, briefly say that um, the more I learn about her, the more I admire her, and I just share in the pain that everybody's experiencing at the loss of this incredible human who devoted so much of her life to helping animals, to helping people, to protecting the climate, to doing everything that's right, and I think she really symbolizes who we all need to aspire to become. Um, we've lost her. And it's up to us now to each do a little bit more. Well, well put, Camille. Uh, that's very well put. All right. All right, and our zero, Peter, a very well-deserved <laughs> zero this episode. Why don't you take this one? We're going back to our friends. This is not a first. I'm I For trivia buffs, in case we, we ever do a hero and zero trivia like we did last year at the conference, I'm fairly certain this is a, a repeat winner or at least in some sense. We're going back to our friends in Australia and the never-ending battle over live sheep export. And it is uh, our friends, our, our, our enemies, or who are they, Camille? Our, our uh, people we know or don't know personally at the Department of Agriculture in Western Australia. And what is going on in Western Australia is a never-ending battle over 
live sheep export, and in particular, live sheep export during the northern summer when animals have to sail through incredible heat to reach their destination in the Middle East. And it's just an absolute... It's just such a travesty to watch this go on over and over again, the way in which the use of law is 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 created as a mechanism to allow exporters and the government to act in concert to allow certain things to happen. And in particular, um, what happened here was a ban on live sheep exports during the northern summer, quite sensibly. And that ban was then overturned with, of course, Camille, very stringent conditions that are going to monitor of and make sure. Because course. now, Camille, we can be, whew, I don't know about you, but I feel relief in the fact there's a vet on board, Camille. Oh, my God. Thank God. Because how many sheep are on board again? I have to look. 50,000. Oh, well, that's right. Oh, no, wait, wait. Only only 35,000 now under the They cut the it back, order. Camille. It was re- and, and Camille, do you know there's a room next to the engine room where the sheep get really hot? I don't know about you. Thank God, Camille. That room is off limits. Like, whew. I don't know. I'm just like... I feel relieved about the whole thing now. We've got a vet who can monitor the 35,000 sheep and ensure that they're all doing well. And now, of course, Camille, nothing will go wrong during this transport. Because, you know, this, this, we know that this, this, um, company has a very good track record. And, ins- oh, wait a minute, Camille, that's not true at all. <laughs> Oh, Peter, have they had some incidents before? Oh, Maybe just a few. A few. Camille, just a few. You know, I, it's it's kind of hard to believe, but uh, the Al Kuwait, which is a ship that's had these problems before, um, hey, they're giving the all clear, all good. We've we've cut fifteen thousand ship. We're sending a vet, and of course, that not loot loading the hotter area of the ship near the engine room because the sheep don't like it there. It's all good now. We can just send them off in the northern summer. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm making light of this because it's just so ridiculous. It's been going on over and over again in Australia. Every time um, advocates or activists are able to get footage, it it's never good. And we've had incident after incident and the Australian government, especially the government of Western Australia, stubborn in, in fairness, Camille, in light of quite a bit of resistance. Now, as I said, there are several political parties in Australia that have taken up the fight against this. It's become a mainstream political issue. And yet the government seems insistent on allowing these transports to continue, notwithstanding tons of evidence to show that they're extremely dangerous to the animals. It's pretty astounding. And at the bottom of this article, two members of parliament from two different parties point out how systemically cruel this industry is when a Labour MP says that the uh, industry cannot be fixed and so it must be stopped. And another independent MP says that the industry industry is systemically cruel and it should be shut down. And I, I don't think there's any other conclusion than to accept that those are true statements. Uh, you know, interestingly, Peter, this whole episode, in a sense, has been about live export or live transport of animals and the problems that we see with it. We're talking about pigs being trucked into slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. We're talking about puppies being shipped from Ukraine or whether it's ship be, uh, sheep being shipped. How's that for a tongue twister? Exactly. Sheep being shipped across the ocean to Kuwait um, for slaughter. I mean, obviously, the evidence is overwhelming that these industries are simply abusive to animals and there's no way around this. So. You know, trying to attach permit conditions to this is pointless because they're never going to fix the the inherent problems here. 
Well, we've seen, yeah, exactly. On every level, we've seen that the permit conditions don't get adhered to. There's not enough monitoring and oversight. The same types of issues arise again and again and again. My concern with live sheep export is very simple. It's I, I don't even think it's possible. I think the risks are so high that the way in which we look at, at, at risk and our willingness to put the animals' lives on the line... We're just willing to do that in the face of profit. Like, that's really what this is about. The idea that you can do it in a way that reduces risk, sure, you can reduce some risk. Keep them out of the engine room, right, Camille? <laughs> it's like, that would be good. But I mean, <laughs> the idea that you can eliminate risk or bring it down to a, a manageable level is nonsense. It's like they are going into an area where time and time again, you have seen animals suffer and they're just willing to do it because it's profitable to do so. Like, that is the answer. And that's what we need to eliminate. That's what it comes down to. It's profitable for someone and it's making someone money. And so some government somewhere is willing to protect that industry, which is frankly just getting tiring. All right. Well, we'll keep fighting, Camille. That's our goal. We'll keep fighting. That's our goal. All right, everyone. Thanks for bearing with us. This has been a heavy episode. Heavy but, episode. Um, it was good to, you know, talk it through in a sense. And we'll keep you posted on everything. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you soon on another episode of uh, Pawn Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!